Well, good evening. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into our talk this evening. Father, I want to thank you for the truth of that song that we just sung. You're not done with us. And yet work that you can accomplish in and through our lives, every one of us. And we're grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, how you even take the broken pieces and you use them for something wonderful. Pray, Lord, as uh, we look at this story tonight, that you would speak to us and give us the faith, O oh Lord, to believe what your word says is true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight I have in this bag uh, two bottles of water. They're very different uh, bottles of water. I don't know if you can tell much from the distance of where you're sitting, partly because all of you sit so far back. Uh, but this, this bottle of water right here is uh, it's clean, fresh water. It's water that could be used for drinking. You could use this for cleaning. Um, you can use it for cooking. You could use it for a variety of different things. Clear, clean water. Now, one thing about water that's important to realize is that uh, just because water looks clean doesn't mean it necessarily is. And so, for example, you could go out in, on a mountain and you could collect some water from a stream and it might look clear, it might look clean, but it might not be after all. So you can't always tell if water is good by looking at it. But this water is. This is pure and if you'd like some, you can get some after the service. I have another bottle of water here and I'm wondering uh, whether or not any of you would like to drink uh, from this water, I don't know if you could tell there's some stuff floating in it, it's moss. Um, any of you thirsty? Any of you like some of this? Now, before you would agree to drink some of this water, I think it would be nice uh, to know where it came from. And so I got this water uh, from a ditch along uh, the road, the Goshen Road, where I live. Uh, so just was water that was running down the Goshen Road, and this water from this source moves into a dead-looking pond. I don't know if any animals live in that pond, but the water looks pretty disgusting, the best I can tell. Now, the thing about this water is you have to, once again, realize that um, though it, it, you know where it came from, of course, but just because it looks bad doesn't mean it is. Appearances can be deceiving. Something can look bad and not necessarily be bad. It could be clean. It just may not look it. I'm going to come back to both of those bo bottles toward the end of the message. Uh, tonight we're going to look at a story. Uh, all summer long we've been looking at stories of different people from the Old Testament. And they were, these are ones that were, for the most part, ordinary people who accomplished extraordinary things. Or they were people that maybe became part of God's extraordinary plan. And tonight we're going to look at the story of somebody who, when we are first introduced to him in the Old Testament, um, he's very ordinary, if not below average, and then he does some extraordinary things. He becomes uh, an extraordinary individual, but that's not where we're going to focus our attention tonight. We're going to focus our attention on some extraordinary mistakes that he made. He kind of blew it big time. And I want to raise the question that if you've really blown it, if you've done some things that are wrong, if you've been involved with some sins that are pretty significant, is it possible to get back up? 
Now, the person that we're going to be talking about tonight here is David, if you haven't figured it out. David, when we're first introduced to him, was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of eight sons, and he was given really the, the lowest task, which was watching the sheep. That's when we first meet David. But as a young man, as a, a teenager, he he killed a giant, and his victory over that giant led to a tremendous victory of Israel over their enemies, the Philistines at the time. And so it was an extraordinary thing he did, and then he became an extraordinary king. He was uh, the king after whom other kings would be evaluated after him, which I'll talk about that in a minute. He was the author of Psalms. A man who was called a man after God's own heart. And so he had all these things going for him. But then he, he kind of blew it big time. He got involved in an adulterous situation. And then in order to hide his adultery, he committed murder. And the question again I want to raise tonight is, can you rebound from a situation like that? He had become water that was dirtied. And the answer we're going to find here is yes. That before all is said and done, he's someone who got his relationship with God restored. He was someone that was used by God in greater ways in the future. And he was someone who would have descendants that one day will bow before Jesus. And we'll talk about all this tonight. But my main takeaway tonight is this, that though David blew it big time, his life ended well. And I think the story is important because I think we should ask that question. What happens when we make mistakes? If we blow it big time, if we sin in some big ways, is it possible for us to get past a major failure in our life or are we done? Are we just kind of sh sitting on the shelf and can't be used by God again? Is it possible that we can get past a painful past? or a marred past into something that's glorious and wonderful where God can use us in great ways, where the future is better than the past has been? And I think the answer to all these questions is yes. Our story is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and so I'd like to begin reading in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 1, where we read, in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Now, let's talk about this for a little bit. The time of year is uh, after May, probably. Uh, in biblical times, like clockwork, the kings would fight each other right after the spring rains. And so March, April, when the rains had kind of stopped, then you'd have these battles going on. And of course, in the Old Testament, you read about a lot of the different battles going on. 
But for some strange reason, David, we don't know why, but David chose to sit out this one. He sent Joab, the commander of his army, to go fight the battle for him, as well as all the soldiers. And so they were all gone when this happened. And I think one of the lessons of the story that I think we should keep in mind is this, that oftentimes temptation comes when we're not in the battle. When we don't realize that there's a battle going on, he just wasn't on his guard. I think he'd let his guard down. And so one night, it appears he'd maybe gone to sleep already, but it says he got up in the night and he went on the roof. And in biblical times, roofs of houses were flat. And he lived in the palace, which presumably was taller than all the other homes around. And from there, he saw this beautiful woman bathing. And as a king, he was used to getting what he wanted. And so he sent a messenger over to the house to find out who is that, who's that beautiful woman. And the, the messenger came back and basically said, uh, David, she's off limits. Her, her father's a liam and her husband is Uriah. Now I find it interesting that, that the messenger mentioned the, those two names in that particular order. Mentioned her father is Eliam, and, and, and she's married to Uriah. I would suggest tonight that th those names are recorded in 2 Samuel because the people in Israel, the readers of 2 Samuel, would know exactly who these two guys were. They were not just average people. I think everyone in Israel knew these two names. It's Uriah and Eliam. Uriah was one of his top soldiers, there's some evidence that he was the armor bearer for Joab, the commander of the army. And so he was an amazing fighting machine, this Uriah guy was. I mean, David had been an armor bearer too to Saul. The person chosen to hold the armor of the king has got to be somebody that can really fight well. I mean, you're chosen. It was an elite position, and this was likely Uriah, armor bearer to this Joab guy. But this Eliam was... Actually, perhaps more significant, because if you, if you look at the rest of 2 Samuel, you'll come to a list of David's mighty men. They're listed by name. 30 of his top soldiers are listed by name, and one of them's a guy named Eliam. And so David inquires, who's this woman? Well, her father is Eliam, and her husband is Uriah. That should have been the end of the story. But it wasn't. He sent for her. And that night they came together, and a little bit later, we don't know how soon, but probably fairly soon, she realized, I'm pregnant, and she sent a message to David and said, I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant. Now, let me tell you what happened next. We don't have time to read it, but... David came up with a plan to hide what he had done. He decided to call for Uriah and bring him back from the battle lines. And he told Uriah, I want you to go home and spend some time, have a nice dinner with your wife and spend the night with your wife. Of course, he knew what would happen. And then he figured that when it was discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant, that Uriah would assume it was his child. So that was his, his plan. Create a context in which it would appear that the child wasn't from David, but Uriah. 
The problem was that the plan didn't work. If you read the chapter for yourself, you'll discover that, that Uriah decided not to go home that night. And the reason he gave, when the king asked him the next day, why didn't you go home? The reason he gave was, how could I go home? When my fellow soldiers are out there in the open field and they're in horrible conditions and they're fighting the enemy, how could I possibly just go home and enjoy myself knowing what they're all going through? I, I won't do it. I, I can't do it. And he refused. So King David came up with a second plan. His plan was to invite Uriah to come over to his house for a meal and to get him drunk. And then he figured that Uriah would kind of stagger home. And once again, he hoped that something would happen that night. And maybe even if nothing happened, Uriah wouldn't remember. In either case, he hoped that it would work. He, he got Uriah drunk, probably insisted. And I imagine if the king is saying, I said, have another cup, he'd probably do it. And, and Uriah staggers kind of home. He didn't go all the way. They had servants, and he ended up sleeping in the servants' quarter, so it didn't work. So now David is trying to come up with a third way to hide what he had done. This is, by the way, human nature, isn't it? We, we sin in ways, we try to hide it. We don't want anyone to know what we've done. We don't want people to think of us a certain way. or We don't want to get in trouble. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we find them hiding from God as if that would be possible. They were hiding themselves and trying to cover their shame, which is exactly what David's trying to do. He's hoping that things will happen in such a way that it won't be discovered what he's done. But the plan didn't work, so David came up with a third tactic. We read about it in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 11. It says, the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and dies. The plan itself, of course, was horrendous, but the way in which he did it was even worse. He gave the note to Uriah to give to the commander, and it was his own death sentence. Joab is told, I want you to make sure that he's in the very front and make sure he dies. And so the, what Joab did was he allowed Uriah and some other soldiers to get too close to the wall of the enemy fortress and those who were firing down with arrows would shoot and kill him and that's exactly what happened. That Uriah then was struck with an arrow but so were some of the other soldiers. Now I would suggest that um, Uriah knew at this point that this was it. He wasn't dumb. He, he knew that you don't get that close to the wall. You don't get within the, the shot of the arrows. He knew that. All the soldiers knew that. And yet he was commanded, I want you to go there. No, go further. No, go further. And then the arrows came. I think he knew what was happening and he died. And so now David was guilty of adultery, but also now he was guilty of murder. Now, what's... Remarkable about this is when I think about who David was. I mean, this is a guy that was chosen among his brothers because his heart was so wonderful. I mean, when David was chosen to be the next king of Israel, God said, I'm looking for someone who has a heart like mine. 
And David was the one who was chosen. A man after God's own heart was the description that was given to him. This is the guy that wrote Psalms. This was this guy who had such a close relationship with God. How is such a thing possible? Well, we all need to be sobered by this truth that it's possible for any of us. You can look at the story of David and say, how could you possibly have done that? Or you could look at the story in David and say, if, if David fell, I, I could too. Because David had an amazing relationship with God. And Paul wrote about that, by the way, in the New Testament. He said, you better take heed lest you fall if you think you stand. If you think that you're, you know, you're above committing this sin or that sin, you better, you better watch out because all of us are susceptible. There's no temptation, Paul further wrote, that any of us face except what's common to every one of us. And God could provide the way of escape, but... All of us are tempted in the same ways. And so if you think, well, this is beyond me. And I've known some people, by the way, that really accused some other people when they fell in some sin only to sin in the exact same way. And then they come to me in tears and they say, I can't believe I did it too. And I thought I could. You accused this other person in pride, self-righteousness, like I couldn't do it. No, any of us could do this. Bathsheba was notified as the story continues that Uriah was dead in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11 we read when the time of mourning ended David had her brought to his house she became his wife and bore him a son however the Lord considered what David had done to be evil now there's some bad news to this story and there's some good news we need to talk about the bad news first kind of what happened to David at this point for at least eight months, and we don't know how long the period was, it might have been a year, but between eight months and a year at least, I would suggest that David's relationship with God was horrible. He felt the way maybe all of us have felt before who have a relationship with God when you knew things were not quite right, but you weren't willing to get them right. You were not willing to bring them out into the open. I think this is how David felt for, for many months. Most scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 32 as a response to this exact occasion. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David writes, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. He found himself in this spiritual desert place. And he felt like God was opposing him and he knew what he had done was wrong and maybe he was afraid somehow it would come out in the open, but day after day, he just felt this spiritual dryness. Things were not right with God. What's encouraging to me about the story is that God went after David. That's what God does. I think God gave David a lot of time to come and make this thing right and bring it out in the open, but he just didn't want to do it. He kept silent about his sin, as he said in Psalm 32. He kept silent about it, and it was really, really hard. But God reached out to him. He sent a prophet by the name of Nathan, which I believe Nathan was actually a relative of David's, but he was a prophet. And God said to Nathan, you go tell David, you talk to David, that I know about the adultery and I know about the murder. 
And so Nathan went, and Nathan was very wise in the way he approached the king. He could have come right out and said, you've committed adultery and murder, but he didn't. He told a story, a story that he knew would grab the heart of David, a story that would make him angry enough so that when the story was flipped around on David, it would hit in the right place. And the story was this. Nathan talked about a guy who owned one little lamb. It was a beautiful little lamb. And he brought the lamb into the house and it became like part of the family. The, the lamb actually ate at the table. And it was so cute that he actually had it with him in his bed. He cuddled with it. It was just his favorite lamb. And then it was the only lamb. Favorite though. And, and there was another guy in the same town who was very wealthy. And this guy had a bunch of lambs and he had a bunch of goats. And this guy got a visitor one day and this rich guy was too stingy to kill one of his own sheep or one of his own goats and so he took this guy's. He was in a position of authority or power, whatever. He said, I'm not going to kill one of my lambs, I'm going to take this one. And he took the lamb of that guy and when David heard the story, he got mad. We read in verse 5 of the next chapter... David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he's done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. And then in the next verse we read, Nathan replied to David, you are the man. It's brilliant. He got David so angry at somebody that would do such a horrible thing and then he said, it's you. God raised you up from tending sheep and gave you a kingdom. He's enriched you with everything you could possibly want. He's given you multiple wives. David had more than one wife and he had many, many kids. And you took this, the love of this guy's life, Uriah. Oh, you used the sword of the Ammonite to kill him, but it, it was you. You're the one who did it. You are guilty of adultery and murder. David's response is worth following. It's worth imitating. In verse 13, we read, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Very, very simple, but it's the way you do it. He didn't make any excuses. He didn't say, well, this is what it was like that night. Or I'm not usually like this, or I, whatever. He didn't have anything, any explanations. I've sinned. I have sinned, and he admitted it. He was very unlike the, the previous king, King Saul, because Samuel the prophet had approached Saul on a, a couple of occasions about things that Saul had done, and Saul started by denying it. And then when Samuel said, You did it then he would give excuses for why he did it and try to explain why he did it. He didn't just say, I have sinned. This was the difference between David and Saul. He admitted what he did. He took ownership of it. And then Nathan responds in the second half of the same verse. Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. I think these are the, among the most encouraging words in the whole Bible. Every time I read them, I think those are such encouraging words. The Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. He's taken away your sin, it's 
been removed from you. Now, some of you might be bothered by that. Maybe we should be bothered by that. Do you, do you know what he did? And, and God just says, I take away your sin. You're not going to die. I mean, death, of course, was what he deserved, both for the adultery and for the murder. The, the sentence was the same. He deserved to die. But God said, I, I've removed the sin from you. You're not going to die, therefore. Why? What kind of God does that? What kind of God looks at such a thing that he did and seems, it looks almost like he makes light of it. Oh, you're forgiven. It's the kind of God that does that with us. It's the kind of God that is willing to forgive us completely and remove our sin. It's the kind of God I want. I, I don't want a God that's going to give me what I deserve. Do any of you really want what you deserve, like everything that you deserve, or would you prefer a God who extends grace to you and mercy, who does not deal with you as you deserve. I might look at this and say, God, you should have really nailed him. I, I wish he'd get, you know, pull out his fingernails or something, slowly torture the guy. He, he deserves all kinds of stuff, not just I forgive you. But this is how God's grace is. If you put your trust in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sin. He's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west from you. That's the way God is, and that's what God did in this situation. Now, understand something about it. It wasn't that there weren't any consequences for what he did. You know, some people think, well, if God forgives so easily, people will presume upon his grace and go out and do all kinds of things because, well, God will just forgive me. I've had people say that to me, by the way. I, I kid you not. They've come to me and said, I'm planning on committing this sin. I just need to know, will I go to hell if I do? Really? How far can I go and make sure I don't lose this thing? And, and my response is, well, if your trust is in Christ, you're forgiven of your sin. And they're, they, they're wanting to resume upon the grace of God. And go do something, because they think, well, it'll be one sin and it'll be forgiven. no. There are consequences. God told David four things would happen as a result of his sin. He was forgiven, but God prophesied four things would happen. Number one is that he'd experience the sword in his own household. And so just like the sword of the Ammonites took away Uriah's life, the sword would pursue him and his household. Second, his own wives would be violated by someone close to him. What he did to someone else was going to happen to him. Third, God's reputation would be marred as a result of this. You've given the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme my name. And the fourth thing was that the first son that would be born to Bathsheba was going to die. The child that they had had together would die. That's what God said would happen. And if the story ended there, it'd be kind of a sad story. I'd be encouraged by the forgiveness, but it looks like it doesn't end well, but I told you the story ends well. I mean, the things that God predicted did indeed happen to him, but this story, this ended well. My takeaway again is though David blew it big time, his life ended well. How did it end well? Well, a lot of things. 
First of all, the next son that he had through Bathsheba was chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. That's huge. You know, in biblical times, usually the oldest or firstborn son of a king would become the king in his place when he died, but God chose the second son of Bathsheba. If, there, if you ever wonder whether or not God gives a person a new start or whether God holds it against you the rest of your life, God looked at David and Bathsheba and said, you're going to have another son. That one is the one I'm choosing. And that's the one that would become the next king of Israel. David would go on to live to a ripe old age. Before he died, he brought together all the resources and the plans to build the most magnificent temple that had ever been built, covered with gold on the inside, a temple to God. His relationship with God was restored. And despite his sin, he was the one to whom all the other kings of Israel ended up being compared. If you read First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, you'll read time and time again where it'll describe one of the kings. It'll say, so-and-so was faithful, but not like David was to his God. They were all compared to David, and you say, wait a minute, this is the guy that sinned in kind of a big way. And you would think that his, everything would be compared to that from then on, like, well, that's the guy that really blew it. No, he, the, keep reading. Read all about all the kings of Israel. Read of the kings of Judah. Time and time again, you'll read the same expression. They weren't faithful like David was. Because David blew it, but he knew to turn to God. He, he knew that he could trust God, and that's what pleases God. God loves it when people believe him and people trust him. His relationship with God was restored. And it was this descendant of Bathsheba who would end up being a distant relative of Jesus himself. The descendant would come through Solomon. It was through Solomon that Jesus would be born, not any of the other boys. And one day, Jesus is going to reign on what's called the throne of David. I'd say, well, why don't you call that throne by a different name? No, it's the throne of David. To this day, David is considered Israel's most beloved king. He did not allow his failure to define the rest of his life. He ended well, and I think we can end well as well. David blew it big time, but his life ended well. Now, I want to come back to these two jars of water here. I think that David in, in what he did had become like this dirty water here. And you would think that if water is dirty like this, it can't be ever used again. It's contaminated. You know, you can drink pure water, you can cook with it and wash with it and everything else. But if water is dirty, it's dirty and you can't use it anymore for anything of value really much anyway. I suppose you could use it on your plants. But um, some time ago, somebody gave me a box of survival kit things about three years ago. And it, it includes all kinds of interesting things, you know, freeze-dried things and other things. Among the things he gave me were, were some tablets. And the tablets say, right on the tablet, it says that you take the contaminated water and put in a pill. And that tells you to leave it in there for a certain period of time. And the water will be good. The water will be drinkable. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look drinkable. 
again, realize you can't tell by what it looks. A lot of people look like this on the outside. We don't know what's on the inside. None of us are pure. And this looks dirty, but I put one of those tablets in here, and it says that if I drink this water, it's okay. Now, the question is, do I believe it? Is that's where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? I mean, the, the pill can make the claim, or the people that make the pill can make the claim, but the question is, can I, do I believe it? I could tell you, yeah, I believe it. I believe it, okay, let's close in prayer. You know, I'd rather do that, perhaps, but no, I'm gonna drink some of it for you. The earlier service, I, says I, could, I could say, in effect, you know, well, I gotta save some of this for the other service, but I don't have another one. But I'm not gonna drink it all, I'm just gonna drink some. Mm. It's not good. <laughs> it's drinkable though. It's been made clean. It's pure. Again, it doesn't look pure. There are two groups of people here tonight. All of you fit into one of the two categories. Some of you have never had your sin dealt with. You've never come to a place where you've been forgiven of your sin through faith in Christ. We believe that um, you can't get right on your own. You can't clean yourself up. You can look like this, but we're all sinners. We all fall short. This is what we are, really. It's just the dirt's on the bottom, and it's hidden from everybody, but it is what we are. And so God sent his son into the world to die in our place and for our sin. He's the only one that never sinned because he was the only one who was God in the flesh. And this was an essential part of God's plan he, that's why he had to be born in such a unique way to marry a virgin because he needed to have an earthly mother. He had to be totally man, but he, he was born of the Father. He was God. And it was essential that that be the case so that he could take upon himself the sin of the world. Jesus volunteered to say, I will take upon myself the sin of the world and all the judgment that comes with that. He so identified himself with sin, he became sin for us. That's what Paul wrote. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he was executed and he died and was buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead and it demonstrates that he was stronger and greater than our sin, stronger and greater than death itself. And we are given the command or the promise that if we'll put our trust in Jesus to be our Savior, we will receive forgiveness of our sin, we'll receive the gift of eternal life. Do I believe it? Do I, have I put my trust in it? I trusted this would work and I took a drink from it. You know, John wrote, the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish will not suffer eternal judgment, but instead will have eternal life, whoever believes in him. So has there come a point in your life where you just realize, I, I've blown it, I, I can't fix it. Today, I wanna receive you, Jesus, as my savior. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John put it elsewhere, as many as receive him, Jesus, to those who believe in his name, Jesus, God gave the privilege to become children of God. We're adopted into God's family. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become, in God's eyes, 
completely righteous. Oh, we won't look it sometimes, but we're clean. Not till we get to heaven will we look it. But if you've never put your trust in Christ, tonight would be a great night to do it. Just in stillness of your own heart. Dear God, I need a savior and I believe you sent Jesus for me. I receive him. I welcome him as my savior. We have a little booklet, by the way, we can give you out at the info kiosk out there that could explain a little bit more about that if you want to know more about it or when we're done, usually we've had people up here that are willing to talk with you or pray and they'll make themselves available to just talk more about it. Others of you have been Christians for a short time or a long time, maybe for years and years you've been Christians, but I think sometimes we don't have the faith to believe that we're really clean in the eyes of God. We hold on to our sin and don't realize that we've been forgiven through Christ. And, and John, I love 1 John 1, 9. It says, if you confess your sins, if you acknowledge it, like David did, I have sinned. If you confess your sins, God is faithful, which means you can count on him, and just, which means it's the just or right thing to do. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Make you completely pure. And this restores, I think, your relationship with God. I, I, I think as believers in Christ, we are forgiven, past, present, and future. I think the debt's been paid on the cross. But like David, we walk in a desert place sometimes, and, and we don't have faith to believe it. I think we need to drink the water too. That's what I'm saying. The righteous person lives by faith every day to say, I'm going to blow it today, but I trust that your death on the cross for me was enough. And so I encourage you to just have an encounter with God, really every day, have an encounter with God to say, I put my trust again in what you've done for me. Jesus paid it all. He shed his blood to make us clean. And it really works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of David. I just think how I read a story like this and I'm convinced that this is indeed your word. I just think how I've read biographies in the past of people and the stories just don't seem real. The people are painted as being sinless. But David was someone, oh Lord, who blew it in some big ways and yet experienced forgiveness. He trusted you. He took those words to heart. Your sin has been removed from you. And at that moment, oh Lord, he could just move forward. Instead of being stuck where he was, he could begin moving forward and be used by you in even greater ways. Help us to grab a hold of these truths, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.